Hi, I'm Dr. Lexi Frydenberg, paediatrician and co-host of the Kids Health Info podcast. This episode is a special edition about COVID-19 vaccinations for children aged 5 to 11 years. It was recorded from a live Facebook webinar from the Royal Children's Hospital. It was streamed live on 16th of December 2021. And as we continue to receive many questions about the COVID-19 vaccine for this age group, we thought we'd share it here as a podcast. You may recognise the voices from the recording as my colleagues and fellow podcast hosts, Dr Anthea Rhodes and Dr Margie Danchen. There are many questions to get through, so sit back and relax as we make our way through them. Over to you, Anth. Hi, I'm Dr Anthea Rhodes, paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, joining you live today for the next hour for a conversation about COVID-19 vaccination in children aged 5 to 11 years. Over recent weeks, we've seen recommendations, approvals and ultimately announcement from the Australian government that vaccination for children aged 5 to 11 years will roll out in Australia from January 10. Understandably, parents have questions. And today, we're here to answer those questions for you. Before we get started with that conversation and I introduce our very expert guest, I'll take a moment to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting today. For us here, that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And we acknowledge their elders, past, present and emerging. And an extra special warm welcome to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander viewers who are joining us for this conversation today. So we've reached out to you and asked for your questions and you've responded. We've had hundreds of questions and I have actually read them all and they come into a variety of categories. People are worried about whether the vaccine is safe, whether it works well enough for their child to have it, whether their child will be distressed, perhaps they have a needle phobia. Maybe your child has a disability or an underlying medical condition and you're worried about what the vaccination will mean for them. So here today to answer these questions, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Associate Professor Margie Danchen. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, Margie. So Margie is also a paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital. She will be known perhaps to many of you if you've watched any of these Facebook Live events before. And Margie is also an expert in immunisation. So she's a researcher with the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the University of Melbourne. So now I think we'll get started and probably the most useful thing to begin with, Margie, is really to um, explain to parents what the current recommendations are. There's a bit of confusion. A number of parents asked us, is it compulsory or is it just recommended? How exactly do they know how many doses to have? What is the dose like compared to that for an adult? So yeah. can you talk us through what the current guidelines are? Well, that's right. A lot has happened in the last week and we're so excited now that the um, COVID-19 pro vaccine program has expanded down to include children 5 to 11 years. So a week ago, our regulatory body, the TGA, approved the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine for children in this age group. And then ATAGI, our group of medical experts, have given us recommendations on how best to use the vaccine. So. For parents, the dose is a third of the adult or teen dose. It's 10 micrograms and it's recommended to have two doses um, eight weeks apart. So there's a slightly longer gap than we perhaps had anticipated. 
In the US, there's a recommended dosing interval of three weeks, and in Canada, it's eight weeks. But Atagi really felt that that um, longer interval would provide uh, better immune protection for kids, perhaps longer protection, and also a reduced risk to myocarditis or inflammation of the heart muscle, which is one concern around the vaccine, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So um, also they have said that if there's an outbreak uh, situation that that interval might be reduced to three weeks. So, but parents just really need to know it's two doses, eight weeks apart, and it's a third of the adult dose. Okay, so that's really helpful. A couple of questions that have come through from parents about that dosing, and I might read some out particularly. So there's been a number of people who are saying, what if my child is heavier or, or larger than even perhaps a typical 12, 13 or 14 year old? Will this dose be enough for them? So Marissa has said, I'm interested in doses for age versus weight. My 10-year-old is heavier than my own 12-year-old, and yet my 12-year-old is getting the adult dose and my 10-year-old a smaller dose. Yeah, so it's really important. The trials um, for this age group were done uh, in five to 11-year-olds, and that really um, recognises that the immune system and the immune response does differ by age. So it's obviously a lower dose, and then jumping up to that next age group, there's obviously the higher dose. So the immune system is not dependent on the weight or the size of the child it's really the age of the child. So if you have an 11 year old, um, the vaccine is completely appropriate at the 10 microgram dose for your 11 year old. If they then turn 12 uh, before their next dose is due, of course they can then move to the higher dose and have the 30 micrograms. But very importantly, we don't want parents waiting. Uh, we know that the vaccine will be available for kids from the 10th of January. If you have an 11 year old, go ahead, make that appointment, get the booking and give them that first dose of the vaccine. That's really helpful. The next question I had here was from Tanya Margie and she was literally talking about her child turning 12 on the 27th of March and the question was, should I wait so that my child can have that larger dose and get the two doses after March? But what we're hearing from you is no, go ahead the current age that your child is on January 10 is the age to make the decision around and yes. then as they have their birthday they will then be moving into the schedule for the older child. That's right and it doesn't matter if they have the first dose at the lower dose and the second dose at the higher dose. The most important thing is that we really want kids to have hopefully one dose before they go back to school and we'll yeah. talk a bit about the school environment in a minute but we want to protect kids, we don't want them to get sick. We know that there um, is COVID circulating in the community and there's this new variant of concern Omicron which we'll talk about so we really just want to make sure that kids are protected and encourage parents to get them vaccinated as soon as they're eligible. Okay so a little bit related there's a couple of queries from parents for particular situations and what the recommendations might be for their child. You just mentioned there's quite a bit of COVID in the community and yeah. I, I've got extended family members who've had COVID. There's been COVID at my child's school and I imagine lots of you watching will have had a direct experience where someone you know, a child you know, has had COVID. So the question for um, you here, Margie, is from Deborah, And this is really about when children have had COVID infection, what effect does that have on their vaccination? Is it recommended that they still have a COVID vaccine? Should they wait? Do they need it at all? 
Yeah, this is a really good question, Anth, and it is important for everyone to realise that even if you or your child have had COVID infection or illness, once you've recovered, it is still recommended that you have the full schedule of doses. So for kids, that's still two doses, even if they've had a, a positive COVID test or, or infection. And does that need to be delayed by a period? So from when you have the COVID infection and then you mm. recover, how, how much longer uh, after that does a child need to then have that first dose of the vaccine? Yeah, and this I think has caused a bit of confusion because initially the World Health Organization or WHO did sort of recommend a six month yes. gap. So after you've had infection, wait six months and then get vaccinated. But in fact, now the recommendation is once you are well after the infection, you can go ahead and get your, your vaccination course. Okay, really important information. So a little bit related to this, We've heard that the vaccine is recommended, so that essentially based on the evidence that's there, and we'll get into that in more detail because there's lots of questions from people about that, um, but it's certainly recommended. Is it compulsory? Will it be mandated? Particularly around things like attending schools or as Carly, one of the parents has mentioned here, entering stores, playing sports. Is this going to be affected for these young children aged 5 to 11? So ATAGI and the government have recommended the vaccine for children. It is not mandatory. Um, so, you know, kids will still be able to freely attend school if they are not vaccinated. And at the moment for this age group, there's no restriction on them being able to move around and go into stores, go to the movies, you know, uh, be out and about. And I sincerely hope that we don't mandate the vaccine for, for children. Um, parents need to be able to have an opportunity to look at the information, discuss it with um, uh, you know, the family, get the child vaccinated, have an opportunity to get their child vaccinated um, and before we start talking about any requirements or mandating the vaccine for children. And I also think it's really important to say that you know, kids have suffered quite a lot in the pandemic. Absolutely. Um, you know, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, where we've had long periods of home learning, kids have really done it tough. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we know that kids being um, able to move around freely uh, and particularly, you know, next year when, when school starts up again, we want them to go to school with their friends. Um, you know, learning is so important, but so is being with their friends and doing sport um, and all of the things that kids love to do. So. It, you know, at the, there is no planning at the moment to mandate the, the vaccine for children, but we still strongly recommend that parents um, get their children vaccinated. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think just to reiterate, Margie, certainly at the Royal Children's Hospital and as a developmental paediatrician myself, we, we absolutely think it's very important that the community as a whole remains inclusive of all children, regardless of their vaccination status, whilst obviously we're recommending it for lots of reasons. It shouldn't be a situation where it's mandated and we see kids missing out on things that are really essential yeah. for their growth and development and to thrive. Very much so. Yeah. Okay, so another question here, a little bit of a change of focus. Um, what about the under fives? So Jackie has said, I've got a four and a half year old. I'm desperately waiting for the vaccination to come. What's it look like? When's it coming? So the good news um, is that Pfizer does have two studies underway for children under the age of five, uh, and that's split from six months to two years and two years to five years. Um, so those two trials are underway at the moment, and we're expecting results sort of early in the new year. And then again, we'll be able to look closely um, at the safety and effectiveness data in that age group uh, before the TGA and ATAGI will make any recommendations for use. But 
yes, the vaccine is coming for younger kids. Yeah, so it looks like sometime in the first half of next year we will really have a, a pretty reasonable idea of that rolling out potentially. Absolutely. If it, it all looks yep. like it's, it's, you know, looking safe and appropriate. And we really, you know, want to be able to expand the program to younger kids um, from six months up. Um, generally, uh, maternal vaccination, so providing the vaccine in pregnancy for mums, um, uh, provides protection for infants in the first few months of life. So that younger program will start from six months and then go up to five. Great. And perhaps also a reminder for Jackie listening um, today is that another way to protect your younger children is to get those five to 11 year olds protected because you're less likely to have them bringing COVID home and into the household. Absolutely. And lots of families might have a two and a five year old. So if you can vaccinate your older child, that's going to help reduce the risk for the younger child as yeah, well. Yeah, very much so. Okay, great. So a bit of a, a shift now, Margie, onto some of the concerns that parents have had. And you and I have both done quite a lot of research um, around <laughs> parental questions and some of their concerns and queries about vaccination, not just COVID vaccines, but vaccines more broadly as well. And the leading concern that you've asked us about at home is safety. So in a recent National Child Health poll where we asked parents about what their questions related to, again, it was about safety. They wanted to know how has it been tested and has it been tested enough to really know it's safe. So I might um, open it up to you, Margie, to talk us a little bit through some of those processes. We had a lot of questions about this and they included things like, is the vaccine still in what we would call a trial phase? Would you describe it as experimental at this stage? Um, Liz, for example, is asking just at the moment where there have been trials, how many children have been involved? So can you give us a bit of a description for parents listening at home, we're hearing the trials are done, it all looks safe, but what does that really mean? Yeah, so the important thing to know is for a vaccine to be approved, um, the regulators still need the same robust um, vaccine clinical trial data. And that's from those three phases, which is the first phase around the safety, um, the second around the immune response, and the third or phase three clinical trials is more around the clinical protection um, that the vaccine gives. And so that data has been required for children. So the Pfizer vaccine clinical trial in the five to 11 year olds um, has now been expanded out to 5,000 children. Um, the initial trial results that were released um, a month or so ago, which were really encouraging, um, included just over 2,000 children. And that showed that the kids had a really good and strong immune response. And it showed um, that uh, in terms of clinical protection against the child getting symptomatic COVID infection, it was 91% effective. Now the trial was too small to show any protection against preventing children going to hospital because actually kids getting admitted to hospital is quite uncommon, which yes. is a good thing. But importantly, what we're talking about here is um, also preventing kids from getting sick. And as I said, it was 91% effective. Now, the follow-up of those now 5,000 children in the trial is ongoing. So we initially um, had two months of follow-up data when the FDA in the US approved the vaccine in America and now you know, the TGA evaluated the data here. But the follow-up of those trial participants is ongoing, which is really important. Yeah, absolutely. That surveillance concept that it doesn't just sort of set and forget. That's right. There's constant vaccine safety monitoring. And then very importantly, real-world data now is available 
available. Yes. Um, and so in the US, there have been over 5 million children that have received one dose uh, of the, the Pfizer vaccine in this age group. And that's actually double the entire primary yeah. school population in Australia. So we have 2.3 million kids in this age group and they've given 5 million kids one dose. Yeah. And 1.4 million, or even probably a bit more now, two doses. Yes. So we have the opportunity here to really learn from the US experience. Um, you know, our ATAGI experts are in communication um, internationally um, with, with other sort of expert bodies and are reviewing these data. So we have now, um, you know, access uh, to quite a lot of safety data and it's really, really reassuring, which is why I think, you know, we all feel so confident recommending the vaccine for kids. Absolutely. I think it's been our experience through the pandemic here in Australia where we've sort of lagged the Northern Hemisphere by, you know, three to six months in terms of the way the actual virus rolled out and, and that really relates to seasons and where yes. it started. And so to that end, we're also, we have the benefit of actually following behind on the vaccine rollouts into, as you say, real world populations, which is really where we get the true indication of what is happening with these vaccines. And my understanding, Margie, is that it's outside of the US, there's a number of other countries as well where vaccination is taking place for children in this five to 11 year old age group. That's right, so it's really expanded now. So Canada was the next country. Um, uh, there are now um, a number of countries in Europe, um, you know, France, Germany, um, and of course, Israel. So it's really the programs are expanding for this age group globally, um, you know, which is just such good news. Yeah, absolutely. So. Now that we have a bit of a sense of what the process looks like, there's a couple of really specific questions. And you mentioned when we first started talking just today about myocarditis and yes. a number of parents at home have put up questions about myocarditis. So this is a condition where the heart muscle can become inflamed or actually even the lining around the heart. So pericarditis um, can become inflamed as well. And we did see that that was a very, that was a very rare side effect that sometimes occurred in um, teenage boys. So the question Margie is, from Raja here, I'd like to know more about myocarditis for children in this age group. Mm. What is the risk? So just to frame the concern about myocarditis a little bit, I should have said also with the clinical trial, those common and expected side effects did not occur more commonly in the younger kids compared to the teens. So just to touch on that briefly, the most common side effects that kids experienced were a sore arm, headache, fatigue and chills. Um, and as I said, they occurred less commonly than the, the teens. But the trial was not big enough to be able to tell us anything about the risk of myocarditis in younger children. So we actually only picked up this um, more serious but rare safety signal in the older teenagers and young people when the vaccine was rolled out in the population. Because the risk, as you said, is highest in teenage boys between the ages of sort of 16 to 17 um, after the second dose of Pfizer vaccine. And that's estimated to be um, around about seven uh, per 100,000. Okay. So um, seven to 10 per 100,000. So of course the concern in the younger age group was, okay, the trial was not big enough to tell us about myocarditis and pericarditis. So um, we wanna learn a bit more from the real world data in the US. And this is the really, really important um, bit of information. So as I said, now there have been 1.4 million kids in this age group in the United States who've had two doses of Pfizer vaccine and there hasn't been a vaccine safety signal for myocarditis or pericarditis. And when you say signal, Margie, what do you mean? So for parents listening, what, what does it 
safety signal mean? Yeah, that's and it's just a really important point. So that the safety signal means that are we detecting more cases of myocarditis and pericarditis than we would expect um, compared to the background rate in okay. the population? And there was no increase in those children who received the vaccine in this age group. So that's really important. And that data is constantly evaluated and updated sort of on a monthly basis. But there was no signal to say, yes, there are increased cases of myocarditis in, in younger kids. And it's also important to remember, of course, that um, myocarditis and pericarditis actually occur much more commonly from COVID yeah. infection itself, yeah. like many, many fold more. Yes. So in fact, you know, the COVID illness causes this, you know, both in older kids and younger kids a lot more commonly. Yeah. And again, that it's a self-limited um, condition. So what that really means is that it does get better over a period of time with supportive therapy on its own. Yeah, so, so the myocarditis generally, just you know, to tell you a little bit more about it, um, the older teens uh, generally would get a bit of um, maybe chest pain, some, some heart palpitations um, or a bit of shortness of breath. They would see a GP or maybe go to an emergency department and most have needed admission to hospital for a couple of nights for some pain relief or anti-inflammatory treatment. Um, and most of the teens have made a complete recovery um, a few months out to sort of three months after having the initial diagnosis. There's a few with lingering symptoms, but there have been no deaths. So, you know, it's something that's been taken very seriously. Um, teens have recovered really well from it um, and we're watching this very closely in younger children. And the take home message really there for parents today with children in this five to 11 year old age group is that we are not seeing the occurrence of myocarditis in That's this right. age group. We just haven't right. seen an increase in younger children. Now it is um, a third of the dose, as I said yes. earlier, so it's a lower dose. Yep. Um, and also ATAGI specifically made the recommendation to increase the interval between dose yep. one and two to eight weeks to also reduce the risk of myocarditis. So, you know, it's been thought of very carefully and monitored very closely, but fortunately we just haven't seen this as a signal yet in younger children. Fantastic. And also a couple of questions here from our Heart Kids parents. So we, we have a, um, you know, a very warm term that we use at, at the RCH for lots of children who we see who have cardiac conditions. So that might be an abnormality of the heart or the structure of their heart. And often they've had a lot of complex surgeries. And I know many of you watching might have a very special heart kid yourself. We had lots of questions from them about the vaccination in those children aged five to 11 years who may have an underlying cardiac condition, is it safe for them to go ahead for their child? So similar to the teens and the recommendations there, there's really only caution if um, the child has experienced sort of active inflammation of the heart, so recent myocarditis or pericarditis, or they have um, current heart failure, for example. Um, but even in those children, most often the benefit of vaccination has outweighed the risk. So any child who does have um, underlying chronic cardiac um, uh, issues or a condition, um, actually we want to protect them more. Yes. They are not necessarily at higher risk of myocarditis or pericarditis. Of course, we would encourage parents to speak with their cardiologist yep. and their primary you know, healthcare provider about their child. But in the most part, those kids need protection and we would prioritise vaccination and the benefit outweighs the risk. Okay. So moving on to a couple of other questions that were really about possible concerns around safety from parents. And many of these things arose for adults too when they were yeah. thinking about vaccination for themselves. So a question from Rebecca. I know this vaccine uses mRNA technology. 
What are the long-term effects of mRNA treatments on children who are still growing? Yeah, so the questions around the mRNA <clears throat> sorry, vaccines have really um, persisted, you know, obviously through the adult program yes. as well. And the mRNA vaccines um, are a new platform um, and essentially they work by teaching the cell how to make the spike protein of the coronavirus. But it's very important for parents to know that the little bit of genetic code, the mRNA, that codes for the spike protein, and then our bodies make the antibodies um, to that to that little um, uh, piece of spike protein. The mRNA is destroyed by the body, as is the spike protein, once the immune response is generated. So it doesn't hang around in the body. It's not going to be causing long-term problems. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. So we as pediatricians don't have concerns that the mRNA is going to hang around in their body and cause long-term problems. Really important, I think, because that's a frightening <coughs> concept for parents when they're making decisions about any sort of treatment for their child. The idea that something long-term might result um, and be of concern it really is one of the things that's most challenging for parents to feel that they really want uh, good reassurance about. And that sort of issue around um, long-term safety sort of ties in with mm, that as well. Does, does. But you know if we're going to see um, a sort of more serious but rare side effect or adverse event from a vaccine we generally see that within six to eight weeks after a vaccine dose. So we'll pick that up within two months. We just don't see when we introduce a new vaccine or we have ongoing safety monitoring, sort of adverse events turning up six months, 12 months, years down the track. It really does flag within that couple of months after a vaccine dose. And in Australia, we have really robust vaccine safety um, monitoring through the Ausvac safety platform and the TGA to be able to constantly be assessing, um, you know, the, the sort of for vaccine safety in the community. And so that ties into a really common um, question that has been raised many times through the COVID vaccine campaign as well, and that's about fertility effects. So we definitely heard from adults and um, about concerns for themselves, and many women talked about effects possibly on menstruation, and I think we've just had even a parent pop a question up now that says that, is it true that the vaccines can have an ongoing effect on menstruation? And a bit related to that, and remembering we're talking about the five to 11 year olds today, some of the questions that came up um, from parents were about their own child's future fertility. For example, Christine had said, can you guarantee there won't be any fertility issues caused by this vaccine for my child in the longer term? So this question around fertility has obviously come up from women of childbearing age and we've been sort of looking at it very closely and addressing it um, in the adult program. And of course, we would understand that parents would ask this question about younger children as well. But there has been no evidence to support an impact on fertility for women in terms of them being able to fall pregnant mm. or for men in terms of their sperm count. Um, and, and, that, there's also, and that's ongoing. There's a lot of research ongoing in this space, but there's no evidence to support an impact on fertility. So we would not anticipate that being an issue for younger children as they grow older. In terms of the impact on menstruation, there have been reports from women that after they've received their COVID vaccine that their cycle changed. It might have got heavier or lighter or the, the, the sort of uh, gap between cycles extended or got shorter. 
But in fact, the studies have more suggested that that is more likely to be an impact from the stress from the pandemic overall, um, and also so even the stress of vaccination for some people, rather than the vaccine itself. And again, that is also something that's been um, looked at very closely and there's ongoing studies looking at that, but that there's no evidence to support that the vaccine itself impacts menstruation at the moment. There's certainly been a lot of stress, Margie, for a lot of people that's had effects on their health in all kinds of ways, you know, outside of vaccination decisions. This is potentially another source of stress for parents that, you know, we're supporting you to think about today, but the pandemic has had a huge effect on mental health and wellbeing. Oh, just huge. And I think sometimes, you know, people might be thinking, well, you know, when I got my vaccine, I wasn't that stressed. I don't, as you said, I, yeah. I don't think we've always appreciated how stressed we've been and especially parents, you know, juggling young children, toddlers, you know, primary school kids, home learning. It's been you know, financial impacts, everything. Yeah. It's just been such a stressful time. So, um, but yeah, I think we can reassure um, parents about the impacts on menstruation. Okay, great. So a couple of other specific questions. One here that relates to interactions or effects on regular childhood immunisation. So obviously there's the, the regular immunisation program that rolls out largely from birth through to four, but then there's some further doses um, in the teens as well. So Kelly has asked, is there any data on interactions with the current childhood immunisations? And I might add to that Margie and also the flu vaccine because I think that's Very going to important. be important too. <clears throat> yeah. So Atagi have specifically come out and said that children receiving the COVID vaccine in this um, age group you know, it should not um, impact them receiving their routine national immunisation program vaccines. They can still get them at the same time if they do. Now in this age group there's not a lot of vaccines due apart from the flu vaccine. Yes. Because as you said, the last sort of vaccine in the childhood schedule, if you like, is at four. Yes. And then again, in year seven, we see um, vaccines given in the secondary school program for kids. So the flu vaccine is the really important one um, that we will be strongly encouraging next year for kids. Um, but in general, children can have their COVID vaccine at the same time as their routine immunisations. Great. And I think important to flag that around flu because we've had, you know, one of the interesting effects of the pandemic and all the lockdowns and the way we have really improved our hygiene and our social distancing has been a reduction in flu largely here in Australia. But we also know that when things have opened back up and we go into another winter, hopefully it's not a winter in lockdown, um, that we're expecting <clears throat> we may see a lot of flu. And so really important that parents also keep that on their radar as something to think about for their kids. Absolutely. I mean, flu has been really low mm. in the last year and even, you know, um, previously, you know, in, in 20, um, 20. 20 as well. Gosh, I'm forgetting the years we're in. Um, but we are a bit concerned that maybe next year in 2022 mm. that flu will start to come back. Yeah. It'll be monitored very closely and communicated with parents. But absolutely, we need to be looking at the flu program. And there's um, work already that's undergone, um, you know, putting the COVID vaccine and the flu vaccine together, together in yeah. a single vaccine. Um, I can't make any comments on whether that'll be available, you know, in Australia and when, but certainly we want to promote the importance of flu vaccine as well. Great. So a couple of questions here still on, on safety, if you like. One is about ingredients and the makeup of the vaccine. So. Uh, I know that traditionally with previous um, vaccinations that, that are on the regular schedule, there have been misinformation um, and myths about mercury that, and, and various products that might be toxic that are actually in the vaccine. So the actual vaccination itself, are there any products of concern or things that people have raised with you that they're worried about for the COVID vaccine? Uh, yeah, so in fact, with the mRNA vaccines, you know, there's certainly no mercury. <laughs> 
And, you know, it's the mRNA, there's some salts and sugars and stabilizers to keep the vaccine safe. The little piece of mRNA or the genetic code is encased in a fat bubble, which is called a lipid nanoparticle. Um, but there's no reason to have concerns about that. That's really to make sure that it's kept stable so that it can reach the cell and encode for the spike protein. And, and really, um, that's one of the reasons why these vaccines have taken so long to be developed because they were a bit more unstable. But there are no ingredients in the Pfizer vaccine um, that you know parents need to be particularly concerned about. And a couple of specific things someone asked, are there blood thinners in the, in the vaccine? Uh, another person has asked, what about anything that's derived from nuts? Should there be any concerns in children who have a nut allergy or any other sorts of allergies, perhaps an egg allergy, that would mean that they shouldn't have this vaccine? So the, the question around allergies is a really good one. It's a common question. Um, but in fact, um, children who have food allergies, so for nuts or egg or fish or whatever, um, they are not at higher risk of having an allergic reaction or anaphylaxis from the vaccine. Yep. Um, you know, really, um, um, uh, anaphylaxis is incredibly rare. Um, it's around about, with the Pfizer vaccine, maybe four to five episodes per million doses. So it's really, really uncommon, uh, similar to what we see with other routine uh, vaccines. Um, but yeah, very important to reassure parents that if their child um, has had anaphylaxis to a food or an environmental allergen, they are generally not at higher risk. Yep. If they are concerned, obviously speak to their doctor. Um, but anaphylaxis is very, very rare to the vaccine. Okay. And that kind of leads us into the question of what we call in, in the medical sector contraindications. So is there anyone who can't have the COVID-19 vaccine, a reason that would be medically um, recommended that they don't have it? So with the Pfizer vaccine, um, there are really only sort of two uh, main reasons why you, or, or permanent, um, you know, reasons you could get a permanent exemption, for example, and that is if you've had an anaphylactic reaction to a previous dose, yeah. say to the first, first dose, dose, or if you've had anaphylaxis to a component of the vaccine. Um, such as, you know, polyethylene glycol or, or you know, um, one of the ingredients of the vaccine, but that's very, very rare. Um, so in terms of, you know, with the Pfizer vaccine, obviously, um, if a child has had recent uh, myocarditis or pericarditis within the last three months, or they have um, underlying heart failure, um, there would be some precautions for those children, and we would strongly recommend that they talk to their GP or cardiologist. Um, but there are, you know, we often get asked, um, you know, kids who are immunocompromised, should yep. they, you know, are they at higher risk? Should they maybe not get the vaccine? In fact, they're at higher risk of COVID infection and we want to protect them more. So children who are immunocompromised should be prioritised to get the vaccine early, yes. you know, and, and their parents should protect them. So it's certainly not a reason to, to hang back. And that is actually the same for a lot of chronic underlying medical conditions. It actually means we want to protect the kids more, not that their parents should be concerned about not vaccinating. Them. And that really relates to a few other specific questions. Some of you have asked us about, you know, what about my child who has a seizure disorder or my child who has an autoimmune condition? Will this flare up? Will the vaccine flare up some of their underlying difficulties? And that's always a difficult question. I mean, I work in the, an immunisation clinic at our clinic at the Royal Children's Hospital and we speak with families all the time who have concerns about their children and they want to understand the risk for their child. Um, in general, there has been no suggestion that the Pfizer vaccine will trigger autoimmune conditions in children. 
But if a parent is concerned about that or their child might have had their autoimmune condition triggered um, by another vaccine or they have specific questions, then we would really suggest that they go and speak to an immunisation specialist. And they do exist in every state through a series of specialist immunisation clinics. So parents can get a referral to go and speak to an immunisation specialist about their child if they have specific questions. And we might be able to put up, Margie, in the feed a link to the centralised website that can help direct parents yeah, I think to that, would be to good. that um, specialist immunisation service that might be available local to them. But absolutely, as a paediatrician as well, seeing a lot of families where children have particularly underlying developmental um, needs or perhaps a disability or a seizure disorder, they do have concerns that the vaccine might aggravate that or but as you say it's really um, the opposite actually because we know those children are actually more at risk of more serious illness if they catch COVID and everything looks very reassuring in terms of any effects on their conditions. That's right yep. So moving on to something that you touched on before and that was the common side effects. So you mentioned Margie chills, a sore arm, um, a bit of lethargy or fatigue, uh, possibly a headache are the sorts of things that children uh, might be experiencing. A number of parents said to us that they felt absolutely awful having had the Pfizer vaccine and um, I've had three doses now and actually I, I didn't do too badly but my husband seemed to struggle through some of it. Um, but you know, in all seriousness, for some people it really knocked them about and they've said, I'm really worried that that's going to be an experience my child has. You know, do I expect that it's going to be similar? Well, so similar to the teens and the adults, um, the side effects do appear to be a bit higher after the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, and as you said, uh, hands down, the most common side effect is a sore arm. I've just had my third dose of Pfizer as my booster and I got a really sore arm. But you know, it is well managed with Panadol or Nurofen. It is unpleasant for a few days. Um, and that is definitely the most common expected side effect. In terms of those systemic symptoms, yes, as you said, um, probably um, fatigue, chills and headache are the most common. And again, more common after the second dose but occurred a lot less commonly than the teenagers and the young adults. Yeah. So parents need to expect that these side effects will happen, talk about it with their child, tell them, tell them that it's their immune system working well, that the vaccine is doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is creating those antibodies to go and around in their bloodstream ready to fight the COVID infection should they fall sick, um, and that it can be managed with Panadol and Nurofen. As I said before, the Vaccine Safety Surveillance System in Australia, Ausvac Safety, there are about um, 500 participating general practices across Australia that send out text messages to adults and to parents at three days, eight days, and about sort of 40 days afterwards asking people to report these symptoms. So there's constant ongoing surveillance for these symptoms in the community. And very importantly, we know that less than 1% in the teen program um, and the adult program, less than 1% of people needed to see a doctor for these symptoms. Okay. So we can expect them, they'll happen. It means the vaccine's working well, but very few people, and you know, we're assuming this will be the same for kids, need to go and see a doctor about these symptoms. And so far it's looking milder in kids, if anything. Milder in kids, and again, there's been no reports from the US that anything has been different as it's been rolled out. Um, interestingly, fever's quite uncommon, quite mm. low. Mm. So that's one positive. <laughs> okay, so we've talked a lot about the safety and heard you know, some really great explanations um, for some of those common myths. 
The next biggest question for parents is, does it work well enough? Does it really work well enough to be worth having? So particularly, um, you know, we've got a question here from Rebecca about what's the effect on the spread and also what's the effect on my child getting sick? Yeah, and these are really great questions. So um, as I said before, in terms of how well it works, it's definitely very effective against um, you know, protecting kids from getting symptomatic infection. So getting COVID um, and, and sort of mild to, to sort of moderate symptoms. Um, over 91, well about 91% effective. We don't have really accurate data yet on how good it is at preventing kids from being admitted to hospital. And that's what we call protection against severe disease, because again, that is quite uncommon in children. But that data has been collected now, and we anticipate it to be very high, because if it's 91% effective against symptomatic infection, um, and certainly in adults, protection against hospitalisation or severe disease is well over 90%. So, and that's really the main aim. We don't want kids to go to hospital. Um, but it is a tricky sort of equation for parents to weigh up because we know in the most part COVID infection is either asymptomatic meaning no symptoms or quite mild in kids but about one percent of children who test positive to COVID with symptoms can be admitted to hospital and we don't want them to be admitted to hospital um, and there you know there's another condition called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children which occurs in about one in th um, 3,200 kids it's quite nasty. It's inflammation of sort of many organs in the body. They, they need to go to the intensive care unit often. And that's, you know, quite a, a severe outcome of, of COVID um, illness or infection. So the vaccine will help to prevent that as well. Uh, and fortunately, deaths from COVID infection in children are incredibly uncommon. Vanishingly rare. I, I mean, tragically, be. we have had one death in Australia of a child under the age of 10 um, from COVID. That child did have some, some underlying medical conditions and any death is tragic yeah. but fortunately death is rare in children uh, but of course the vaccine will um, you know be very effective against preventing severe um, disease and you know death as well. And what about prevention on spread or transmission as we call it Margie? So this is a really tricky question. Parents obviously want to know, okay, well, how, how effective will the vaccine be against, you know, um, preventing transmission at home, in mm. the community and at school? Yeah. So we don't have really concrete data yet to be able to give people a percentage reduction in spread. We know that in adults, it's about a 30 to 50% reduction in spread um, after, you know, two doses and more after three doses uh, of Pfizer vaccine. In children, what we do know is that vaccinating them um, will definitely help to reduce the spread in households. And that's really important because kids can pass it on to vulnerable adults, particularly grandparents. It will help them to reduce spread in the community. And very importantly, it will help to reduce the spread of COVID in schools. Yes. And that's, you know, that's really critical. We've seen here in Victoria and in New South Wales, a huge number of cases in schools, um, closures of schools. Mm. And so anything that we can do to reduce transmission in schools is going to be, you know, super important. But it is also important to say that vaccine is not the only way that we're going to reduce transmission and all of those public health measures are still really important. So we don't want parents to get the impression that by vaccinating their kids, you know, that's all they need to do. Yeah. Hygiene, getting tested if they have symptoms, wearing masks, you know, indoors at schools, you know, making sure that parents are aware of the recommendations if they change is just as important as vaccinating. 
Absolutely. And so thinking about all those things, it's probably good to think about Omicron here as well. Yeah. So we know that Omicron has been labelled a variant of concern and that one of the factors that makes it concerning is that it has this concept called immune escape. So it's actually perhaps changed in a way that means that our natural immunity, if we'd already had COVID, or immunity from a vaccination might not work as well. Yeah. So how do we fit Omicron into this picture? Yeah, I mean, Omicron really wasn't the Christmas present we were all looking no. for. No. So Omicron was first really detected sort of around the 23rd of November or so, and it has um, been, as you say, being labelled as a variant of concern. And what that means is that there are changes to the spike protein um, that haven't been seen before. There are about 26 new changes to the protein. And so that means that it will impact how well the vaccines work. But the important concept is it doesn't mean that they won't work at all. Mm. The vaccines will still provide a base level of protection. There's data being collected all the time in terms of you know, how much will um, those changes uh, in the virus affect the protection that the vaccine provides. But it's still the best armour we have. It still provides protection and it will still do that for kids. So that's really important. Importantly with Omicron, um, yes, it's a lot more transmissible. That means it spreads more easily. We're seeing that in the media. We're seeing it everywhere. We're going yeah. to see it in the community. So what that means, you know, for kids is that more children are likely to get infected and, mm. you know, until they're protected, um, which means potentially that we could see more children admitted to hospital, not necessarily that the proportion of kids would change. And that gets to the second point, which is at the moment, the Omicron variant doesn't look like it causes more severe clinical infection. Yeah. So that's the one big positive. It doesn't look like it causes worse disease, but it does it is spreading and it will cause more cases. So mm. what we want to do is everything we can to reduce spread, all those public health measures plus vaccination because we don't want kids to get COVID. Absolutely. And we have to remember that we're heading yeah. into another season and another winter. And as much as we probably don't feel like we have the energy to imagine what's next, but there is always that potential with viruses, all viruses, that mutation continues. And you could almost certainly say Omicron's not the last, um, you know, a variation that we'll see on the COVID original um, and we don't know what's next. So getting what we have on board to protect our kids, as you say, is going to provide some protection and then it, it, it's yet to be seen how much it is as the variant moves on. And I think this highlights one of the things that we've had to deal with the whole way through the pandemic, which is uncertainty. We'd love to be able to exactly say, you know, how much protection against Omicron the vaccines provides and whether kids will need more than two doses. Will they need a booster dose? There's lots and lots of questions. But unfortunately, we've all had to become accustomed to receiving information as it comes to hand. Yeah. So, you know, all of these questions are being asked, information is being gathered, evidence is being gathered, and it, it will be communicated with parents as it becomes available. And we have to be a bit responsive to change. Maybe the gap between the two doses will come shorter. Maybe the booster dose interval, which has now been reduced to five months, maybe that will come down. And it doesn't mean that the initial recommendation was wrong. It just means that we're collecting data, collecting evidence, and we need to be responsive to that evidence. Yeah, so it's quite the opposite really, isn't it? It shows that we're continuing to actually gather things as we go and in 
informed decision making, but it is challenging for parents it's to really process hard. and, and it, it's exhausting. Well, it feeds into our anxiety and yeah. we want to know, we want to be across everything. And so, you know, the real transparency in communication, providing parents with the information that they need to know as it comes to hand, you know, really helps to build trust because yeah. parents want to trust the information they're receiving and you know that's what we're trying to do today. Absolutely and that's what these Facebook lives have been about through the pandemic and we'll be continuing to run them into next year and you know lots of parents have really kind of voted with their feet in, in tuning in and showing us that that up-to-date trustworthy information is really important to them in their decision making. So moving Margie to um, one more question around you know risk benefit and then we'll get into sort of planning for the vaccine for those who are ready and raring to go ahead. So we've touched on this a little bit but a question from Ali is all along we've been informed that COVID doesn't actually affect children too badly and we've just heard that again from Margie and if they do get it it's usually pretty mild. Therefore I'm quite confused as to why would we want to give our children this vaccine even if the side effects are rare. The rest of the population are mostly vaccinated so really what's the driving force and the benefits around vaccinating young children? This might be exactly what you're thinking at home too. Yeah and this is really the critical question and I touched on it a little bit before. The first thing to say is we don't want kids to get COVID. It is a blessing still that yes, in the most part, infection either produces almost no symptoms or very mild symptoms. But as I said before, 1% of kids who test positive to COVID with symptoms can be admitted to hospital. And then, you know, some can get that nasty multi-system inflammatory disorder. Yes, it's rare. And of course, you know, very, very rarely a child can die from COVID. But still, that direct protection that the vaccine provides is really important. But then the second thing is the indirect benefits of the vaccine. And this is a new concept. Normally, when we recommend a vaccine for children, we just focus on those direct benefits. But now we're saying, well, actually, these vaccines have indirect benefits, including reducing transmission in households, the community and schools. And then lastly, enabling our kids to go to school safely and freely without the risk of having COVID cases happening, kids having you know, close contacts, having to go home and quarantine. I mean, it has been so challenging and disruptive for parents to you know, be notified suddenly that their child is a close contact, they've got to go home. You know, they were quarantining for 14 days, the parents can't work. It's very stressful, all the testing. So as much as we can reduce cases and potentially transmission in schools, the better, because we want kids to be able to go to school freely um, and we want them to be able to enjoy all the benefits of school. So those indirect benefits, I would argue, you are as important or maybe even more important than the direct benefits and I don't think we should downplay them no. you know just because COVID infection is a bit milder in kids and severe disease is uncommon or rare doesn't mean that we shouldn't be prioritizing keeping them well um, keeping them at school enabling them to enjoy their lives and be kids you know and play not, sport, not just school everything. Maggie, everything and being everything. out there in the community and we have seen the mental health impacts in children there's lots of research and data on that now we've we've done of it I've done some of that myself as have you of those indirect effects and and they are not to be underestimated so having our children back engaged in the community and able to thrive and do all the things that keep kids well Absolutely. is really important. And, okay. and you know, in just quickly in terms of the, the mental health impacts, it's so true, you know, kids need to see their friends face to face. They need yeah. to be able to engage in sport, be in the school play, 
and learn in the classroom face to face. So, you know, the vaccine will enable our children to be able to be at school safely, um, as long as parents are still aware that those other public health measures are still really important and that if kids have symptoms, they need to be tested. Absolutely, we can't sort of forget all of that and think vaccination is the silver bullet. It's obviously yep. the, the main piece of our armour at the moment, but all the other factors are so it's important like, too. You know, the vaccine is an essential piece or essential element of our toolkit, yeah. but it's part of the toolkit. But it's a pretty critical element of the toolkit because kids are fed up. They yep. want to just move on and, and really, you know, get back to their lives. Okay, so we've got about <laughs> 10 minutes to go. Margie and I could talk about this all day, but we won't because we know that people are busy. So just on to... A question about planning for vaccination. So there's lots of parents who sent us messages who are really keen to go ahead and, and get their child vaccinated. Remembering that you mentioned before, Margie, and absolutely you're right, that in this five to 11 year old age group, there's not typically many vaccines. There's none on the full schedule. Some of these children will get a flu vaccine, but for a lot of them, they haven't had a vaccine for quite a long time. And the vaccination in, in the early years of childhood, they won't remember. And we know from various research that anywhere between a third and two thirds of children might have a fear of needles. And some parents have questions about how to best support their child in the process of actually getting the vaccination done. And I think really important to flag here and for everyone listening um, to remember that this is a two dose schedule at the moment and it may ultimately include more doses just like it has for adults. So it's about getting it right the first time because otherwise you're going to have to go back with a child who perhaps had a really distressing experience or maybe you were waiting hours in a queue and everything went to pieces and you've got to turn around in eight weeks and try and do it all again. So how can we get this right or as close to right as we can the first time? Yeah, and this is, a, <clears throat> this is a really critical point. The most important thing I think the message to give to parents is we know they're a bit anxious about the vaccine and the kids are probably going to be a bit anxious about it as well. So parents talking to their children, planning with their kids is really, really important. And what we mean by planning is sit down and chat with your child um, about you know, where they would like to receive the vaccine, talk about the options with them. Obviously this depends on, on the age of the child a little bit, but who they would like to go with them, what would they like to take with them? Would they like to take their teddy bear, their iPad, what music? It just gives kids a sense of control over the process um, and, makes them f and it's more likely to make a sort of a positive experience. In Victoria, we're actually developing an immunisation plan to help guide parents to have this conversation with their child, to, to plan together, and also to direct uh, parents a little bit if their child might need a little bit of additional support, if they have needle anxiety, uh, or if they have um, some disabilities or, or, or autism and some sensory requirements, or even if they have more severe needle phobia. So just sort of alerting parents that there is and um, will be additional support for kids who, who might need a bit more help to get their vaccine. Absolutely and I think important as you've said Margie to have the conversation flag that early you might need to have extra time for your appointment if you can see your GP and they're offering vaccines that's going to be a great option it'll be familiar and a trusted place to go and also just to mention for parents who are listening who perhaps do have a child with disability or underlying conditions that might make it more challenging for them for example Kerry who asked us how will children with special needs and their families be 
supported for vaccination. There is going to be a, a fabulous Facebook Live event on January 11 by the Association for Children with Disability and one of the Royal Children's Hospital paediatricians, Dr Sarah Loveday, will be on that. So we'll pop the link in our feed and that will be another really good place for you to go for information. And as Margie said, also resources that are being developed in Victoria by our government, but in all the states and territories across Australia, they will have um, suitable resources to help you get this right and do it in a positive way. And maybe just to mention for parents some of those distraction techniques that are available and can be used. Um, there are some little vibrating devices um, called the Buzzy Bee or cool wands or, or, um, that can be applied to the skin to make it um, uh, a bit easier for kids to receive their vaccine. Um, for children with autism, for example, um, there are low sensory environments with low noise, low lighting um, that are being developed. Now this will obviously vary by state and where it's offered. Um, certainly this is being developed and available in the vaccination hubs in Victoria. Um, but just so that parents are aware that there is additional support that they can receive for their children if they have needle anxiety or needle phobia, and particularly for kids with disabilities. Um, here in Victoria, we have the, the disability liaison officers which can provide support to parents, and I'm sure other states offer very similar services. So, you know, I would just encourage parents to talk with their kids, make a plan, try and understand what you think your child might need, and then reach out for that support. And of course, GPs offer a fantastic service and do this, you know, every day. Um, but, you know, there are different levels of support that parents can access. Yeah, and I'll jump in there to Margie and mention that we've got a great podcast that Margie and I recorded um, with some of our great experts at the Royal Children's Hospital around needle distress or needle fear and phobia. So we'll pop that up in the feed as well. That might be something you could listen to that will direct you to some assistance. And we don't have time to get into it in detail, but there are also fabulous virtual reality goggles available, Margie, at, at some of the hubs, certainly in Victoria, and there will be other places where this might be an option too. So kids can actually be on some sort of underwater adventure and not even notice that they're being vaccinated. So thinking about how we do this right for children um, is really important. And remembering this is not just a rollout like for adults or older kids. We need to think about the developmental needs of each individual child and tailor it to them. And, and maybe just quickly to add to, we know One that, minute, Margie. Oh, sorry, that it'll be tricky for parents with younger children, babies. Yes. So, you know, there's a lot of thought to reduce wait times as well. So just to reassure mums. Absolutely. <laughs> I've got four kids, some of them young, and the idea of standing in a queue for hours, you know, this Father Christmas is bad enough, let alone doing it for a vaccination. <laughs> so we do only have a few minutes left, and um, I'm sure you'll all agree that it's been fantastic to have Margie here with us today to share your expertise and your wisdom and just great advice. So thank you. Thank you very much, Margie. Thanks so much, Anne. And I also want to take a minute just to acknowledge everyone out there watching and to thank you for carving out an hour of your day to join us for this conversation. I know it certainly feels like for us here in Victoria that almost a year, if not longer, worth of events and activities, especially for parents, have all been squeezed into the last month. So we're exhausted and we're busy and we're maybe limping to the finish line a little bit. <laughs> but um, finding that hour in the day is, is not a minor thing. So it really tells us how important this is to parents and we acknowledge that questions are absolutely normal and we hope that we've been able to address some of those for you today. It's likely you might have more questions and please um, seek out your trusted healthcare provider so your GP is a great resource. There'll be people to speak to wherever you present to for a vaccination and lots of online resources that we've mentioned um, today as well. Just a, an acknowledgement too, we talked about mental health impacts of the pandemic and we really recognise that this has been a very 
difficult and stressful time for a, a lot of people. If you are having a difficult time and you would like some assistance for your own mental health and wellbeing or that of your child, then please don't hesitate to reach out for help. We will put some contact numbers in the feed for you today. Lifeline is a, a great resource beyond blue. Head to help here in Victoria and of course the Kids Helpline as well. So thank you to the Victorian Government for supporting this work and also to our campus partners, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the University of Melbourne who work along with us in all this fabulous work that we do do at the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne to bring you expertise today. And the last thing I'd really like to say is to take the opportunity on, the, on behalf of the Royal Children's Hospital to wish everyone a safe and, and happy holiday. Hopefully you have some time to connect with your loved ones. I'm certainly looking forward to having a break and spending some time with my family, as I'm sure Margie is too. Hopefully you will also have a chance for some rest and to revitalise a little bit as we head into 2022. And let's hope it's a good year without too many surprises. So take care and see you next time.